2022 election spending is on track to break records. Super PACs and other groups have already spent over $53 million on Democratic House primaries. That's according to Open Secrets, a research group tracking campaign finances. And the conservative Super PAC for Club for Growth Action has raised almost $56 million all on its own, with most of its funding coming from just three donors. How much influence do these mega donors have on policy? And why is it that every year more cash is pumped into politics? And we should note we reached out to some of those big spenders. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee declined to join the conversation today, and we did not receive responses from the Club for Action Growth PAC, the House Majority PAC, or the Senate Majority PAC. But before we get to the spending groups, let's start with megadonors. A conservative nonprofit recently received the largest contribution ever made by a single person to a political organization. The donation was for $1.6 billion, but we don't know much else about it. We'll take a look at what we do know after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to connect with us on Twitter. Find us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation and welcome Kenneth Vogel. He's a reporter at the New York Times covering money and politics. Ken, welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you, Jen. And Shane Goldmacher is a national political reporter for the New York Times. Shane, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. So, Ken, let's start with that $1.6 billion donation. Again, it's the largest political advocacy donation ever made by a single person. And it went to a conservative nonprofit called the Marble Freedom Trust. What can you tell us about that organization? Well, the Marble Freedom Trust was set up uh, by Leonard Leo and his allies. Leonard Leo is the longtime executive at the uh, Federalist Society, who is perhaps more responsible than any other single person for the conservative dominance of the Supreme Court right now. The Federalist Society and Leonard Leo created this pipeline of of, uh, conservative lawyers and judges through which uh, a not, through which all of the conservatives on the Supreme Court came, and he has worked closely with successive Republican administrations to uh, get these judges appointed to federal uh, judgeships. And in the process, he has made a lot of connections with very wealthy conservatives who look fondly on his work and see it as some of the most impactful work being done on the right to shape politics and policy. And one of these donors uh, left him, actually transferred his entire company to this Marble Freedom Trust that Leonard Leo set up uh, that uh, resulted in this $1.6 billion infusion for Leonard Leo and this new group. Now you're referring to tech manufacturing mogul and longtime conservative donor Barry Side. Shane, what more can you tell us about Barry Side? Well, I mean, the short version is not a lot, especially for the magnitude of money that we're talking about here. You know, this is a person whose last disclosed federal campaign contribution was well over a decade ago. So he's not someone who's been operating on the level of, uh, you know, Sheldon Adelson or Michael Bloomberg, the sort of big donors on the left and right that we hear about funding campaigns. But what he has been is a conservative contributor who clearly Leonard Leo you know, developed as a potential source because the size and scope of this contribution really is unlike anything we've ever seen. At $1.6 billion, if you just put it in a bank account 
and you earned a 5% interest rate and you just spent the interest, never even touching that $1.6 billion principal, you'd be spending $80 million a year. So the, the size of this donation is just enormous. And what, what he did was he didn't just give his personal money to this nonprofit group. As Ken mentioned, he gave his entire company to the nonprofit group just before it was sold. And that maneuver meant that all $1.6 billion of the company's sale price went into the nonprofit and none was paid in taxes. Now, if you normally sold a company, you'd have to pay taxes on it. You'd have to pay capital gains taxes on how much your company has increased in value. But because he gave it to a nonprofit, a tax exempt group, not only is it the largest sort of politically affiliated donation that we've ever seen, it's one that skirted potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of taxes. And Ken, when we talk about sidestepping the, the tax burden that would normally go along with this type of sale, I mean, what does that mean for everyday taxpayers? Well, we quoted a political scientist, uh, uh, rather, sorry, a tax expert uh, in our story saying that this is one way that very wealthy political activists are able to skirt their tax burden and, and essentially shift it, the cost of paying for whatever their, their, their taxes would have paid to other folks who don't have the ability uh, to employ uh, very smart lawyers uh, and don't have the means to uh, throw around these huge sums of money, while at the same time sort of allowing these folks, allowing regular folks to subsidize the political spending of these very wealthy conservatives or these very wealthy activists, I should say. It's not just conservatives who've uh, employed techniques like this, though, as Shane mentioned, this is the biggest donation that we've seen and is sort of unusual in that when we do see other examples of this, that is people um, giving assets to a nonprofit group to then do with as they please and you know sell them and reap the benefits without paying taxes, it's usually shares of a company, either a company that they own uh, or just a publicly traded company that uh, is, you know, that, that, that has diverse ownership. So we've never seen an example of an, the, the shares of an entire company being given to a nonprofit like this uh, in a way that, as she mentioned, skirts taxes. And we should say skirts taxes not just for Barry Sy, the donor, because he's giving this, he's giving the shares to a nonprofit group and therefore not having to pay capital gains tax on it. But also the nonprofit group doesn't pay tax on it because it is, as the name suggests, exempt from taxation. It doesn't pay income tax or capital gains tax. Uh, so it's, you know, something that is, uh, I wouldn't say it's increasing because we haven't seen that many examples of it. Certainly we haven't seen any examples of it at this scale, but it's definitely something that is on the radar of uh, experts, tax experts, philanthropic experts who follow this type of thing, something that they worry about. I want to get some understanding into the reporting process behind this, Shane. How difficult was it to figure out where the money came from, uh, the tax side of this? Uh, was it transparent or did you have to do some digging? You know, what I would say is that it's a combination of looking at the tax document that we had and figuring out what exactly is happening here. Um, because again, we haven't seen something quite at this scale. And the the gift of the company um, that, that was given uh, wasn't actually named on this tax document because one of the other advantages of giving to these nonprofits, these part of the tax code called 501c4s, is they provide anonymity for the donors. And so while the size of the transaction appears on the tax form, 
the names of the people giving the donation do not. Um, and so that does involve uh, additional reporting, right? You, you can't just um, know everything from seeing a document. You have to have human sourcing as well. Shane, you write about how this is an example of Republican megadonors attempting to level the funding playing field. What do you mean? So Ken and I did a big story earlier this year where we looked at the 2020 cycle. And again, using these tax documents that are on a real time delay to look at how much money was spent by these political nonprofits in the 2020 presidential cycle. And for years, the belief and understanding had been that Republicans were leading this this big money, dark money race. Uh, And what we found is that the opposite was true in 2020, that Democrats had in fact caught up um, and used a couple of major vehicles to direct hundreds of millions of dollars. And so this single $1.6 billion donation has the ability to maybe not just level the playing field, but tilt it back pretty strongly up the other direction. And let's bring two more voices to the conversation. Seth Maskett is a political scientist at the University of Denver and the author of Learning from Loss, the Democrats from 2016 to 2020. Seth, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. Also with us is Aaron Klopak, the Senior Director of Campaign Finance at the Campaign Legal Center. Aaron, welcome. Thanks, John. Great to be with you. Seth, I'd love to start with just some definitions. Uh, Campaigns raise money in lots of ways through political action committees, commonly called PACs or super PACs. How are PACs different from other types of donors? So PACs are often set up by um, interest groups or by businesses. They're just a way for a group to um, essentially raise more money and spend more money than just one individual can on a federal election. But in the, you know, in the last decade plus, we've seen the development of things called super PACs, which um, it, it generally, as the name implies, it's a, it's a bit of a larger organization. Essentially, it's, it allows for unlimited donations. Um, people can donate as much as they want, um, and these, these organizations can be involved as much as they want in elections, except they're not allowed to coordinate uh, directly with campaigns um, or, or with the candidates. So the candidates and the parties don't have direct control over them, even though they tend to be sort of generally aligned with them. Um, one of the things we seem to be talking about this morning is this, um, this Marble Freedom Trust, which is a somewhat different type of organization, um, generally called like a 501c4. Um, these are different in the sense that um, they're generally, they're, their main purpose is not campaigning. They're what's called a quote-unquote social welfare organization, which that, that's a little bit of a vague concept, but it just means that, you know, they can be involved in elections as long as that's not what they do with most of their time and money. And essentially, people can donate as much as they want, and they don't need to disclose who their donors are. Ken, when we look at campaign spending right now, how much of it comes from PACs or super PACs as opposed to, you know, just a, a single donor sending in $25 to a campaign? Yeah, I mean the balance has shifted um, as as uh, you know th- these big money vehicles have emerged as a uh, a real force in American politics. Um, you know, just to give you an example, like right now, uh, Open Secrets, the Center for Responsive Politics, is a, a website, nonpartisan website that tracks uh, campaign spending and politics. They had a story based on um, the most recent filings that say that Senate races had attracted nearly a billion dollars ahead of the 2022 midterms. And that's, you know, really through the primary. So that's not even including the general election. That's fundraising, not uh, 
not spending, but uh, you know, Shane and I reported that in 2020, uh, the top 50, so that's all Senate races. That's a, a lot of Senate races. So Shane and I reported that the top 15 uh, liberal or Democrat aligned dark money organizations spent more than $1.5 billion. So, uh, you know, it's not always possible to do a, an apples to apples comparison, particularly because as we talked about with Shane, the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the filings showing dark money spending don't come in until well after the election in question. But I think it's safe to say that the, the, the balance has, has shifted and certainly the ability for these dark money groups and super PACs to spend more money than the campaigns themselves is is there. We got this tweet from Cliff who says, Citizens United made bribery legal for conservatives specifically and especially. Buying a judge or politician is an investment, a good one. You know, Aaron, we started the program talking about the largest political donation ever made by a single person. Or, or actually, let me take a, a step back. In 2010, we're talking about the Supreme Court landmark decision on campaign finance, Citizens United v. the Federal Election Commission. And the court struck down restrictions on how much corporations and outside groups can spend in elections. Why was that ruling significant? Um, Well, so the Citizens United decision, which said corporations and unions can have a First Amendment right to spend unlimited amounts on elections, was premised on two really important conditions. First, that those groups act independently of the candidates they're supporting. And the reason that was important is because the court said if they're not coordinating, then there can't be any corruption. And so there's nothing to be concerned about here. And then secondly, that that all of that election spending would be transparent so that the public would know where the money was coming from, what it was spent on, which candidates are being supported or opposed. And both of those components of the decision were really crucial to the court's analysis that this all, you know, was fine and wouldn't be a problem. But what we've seen over the past decade is that, in fact, it's actually really easy for wealthy individuals or corporations to spend a ton of money to influence elections while still concealing their identity and that there are plenty of ways for candidates and these supposedly independent groups that support them to work together without actually getting in trouble for illegally coordinating. And so what that's meant is that these outside groups, whether we're talking about super PACs or particularly C4s, are a really attractive vehicle for people who want to spend a lot of money on elections and and help candidates that they prefer um, and to do so in secret. And Ken, again, it's important to note that we've seen Citizens United impact spending on both sides of the aisle, correct? Yeah, that's right. And and as uh, we discussed in the last segment, Democrats for a long time, I mean, the, the decision came down uh, under, under uh, President Barack Obama, and he decried the potential for foreign influence to uh, be exerted on uh, federal politics, on, on really all levels of politics in the United States as a result of this decision. And uh, there have been various efforts by Democrats to try to rein in the effect of this decision. Obama, even during his reelection campaign, told, ironically, told some big donors during a closed door fundraiser that that he, in his second term, would work to for towards a constitutional amendment to reverse Citizens United. Obviously, that didn't happen. But um, you know, Democrats really decried the influence of, of dark money and big money in politics. And uh, as as we discussed, they we're seen as really trailing in this as, Dem- as as Republicans took advantage of it more aggressively, certainly in the years after 
uh, Citizens United. And then in 2020, according to our assessment, Democrats actually spent more in uh, or raised and spent more of dark money uh, than than uh, uh, than Republicans did. And obviously there were some unique circumstances. A lot of Democratic donors saw Donald Trump, a lot of Democrats more broadly saw Donald Trump as an existential threat to democracy. And so they were maybe willing to set aside their qualms about this type of spending um, and, um, you know, appeared to not just level the playing field, but actually surge ahead. That's why this donation that we exposed of $1.6 billion to this group, Marble Freedom Trust, controlled by Leonard Leo, is a big deal because it uh, seems to reset the balance in favor of Republicans and their allies again in this type of spending. Now, the group spending the most this election season is the Club for Growth Action. That's a conservative super PAC. They've raised over $52 million just this primary season, according to Open Secrets. Ken, what more can you tell us about that group? Yeah, this is a, a group that has long been on the sort of small government, um, low taxation side of the sort of the economic side of the Republican Party. And uh, they have this um, uh, that th- they have uh, cultivated, uh, you know, a, a relatively large group of donors who are, um, you know, have this as their uh, primary sort of uh, political focus and have been able to raise huge sums and, and influence. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about the club for growth is, uh, you know, they, um, uh, they have, um, you know, at times found themselves at odds with the Republican party, uh, and have challenged the Republican establishment, uh, when it, when, when it, when the, the leaders of the club have seen the Republican establishment as, um, advocating for, uh, you know, a, a big government expansions, uh, whether that be in foreign policy or elsewhere, um, and, uh, you know, that the, the, there are some sort of purists in that, in that uh, um, sort of wing of the Republican Party who have questioned whether the Club for Growth has continued to adhere to those principles or if it has just become a de facto arm of the Republican Party and not really a, uh, um, you know, an issue focused small government enforcing entity. Well, the second highest level of spending this election cycle comes from the American Israel Public Affairs Committee and its super PAC, the United Democracy Project. Now, APEC has raised almost $27 million this election season. Uh, They're supporting both Democratic and Republican pro-Israel candidates. Seth, explain the impact an APEC endorsement has. Yeah, so that's, um, in some ways, that's a different kind of organization than what we've been talking about. They're not explicitly partisan. Um, but they do have a you know a very specific set of issues that they're trying to advocate for, and they try to you know they look for candidates who they see as uh, you know very supportive of Israel and try and give them a lot of money. Um, so they you know they do have some impact on politics, and you know uh, people who are running for office you know are if they're seeking that support will make sure to include certain messages in their speeches, and you know will stay in touch with those people. And sometimes that is more of a uh, of an insider influence. That is, these are this, this is a group that is trying to be active within Congress and to influence policymaking. Um, rather than to explicitly influence the outcome of elections. Of course, there's there's a lot of overlap from one side to the other there. We reached out to APAC to be involved in this conversation, and they declined to join. Let's go to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Kathy in North Carolina. I think it's hideous that we have dark money influencing our elections. I teach at a historically black college, and many students think their votes don't count. And when you've got all this 
money, millions of dollars going in, you know, they may have a point. So I, I want to ask two questions here. First to Ken, when we're talking about these massive sums of money coming into races, first, do individual donations really matter? Yeah, they do. And I think, you know, I, I talked about the initial period after Citizens United where there was a lot of consternation that uh, our politics would become dominated by this type of big money and, you know, small donors and individual activists and activism wouldn't uh, would be sort of drowned out by this big money. And that, that really hasn't been the case. I just want to get your reflections on that other part of Kathy's question, which was focused on the, the, the value of a vote and people perhaps feeling like with this much money coming in, does it matter what I do as a voter? Absolutely. And I, I'm so glad you you asked that question because, you know, the freedom of speech guaranteed by the First Amendment is supposed to ensure that the government re- remains responsible to the will of the people. And so even if the money that's pouring in doesn't result in victories of every candidate that's supported, it is reflective of who gets to have access and influence to the people in power. And, you know, when, when you can't compete with thousands, let alone millions of dollars in contributions, it certainly, um, you know, makes people feel completely disengaged from the democratic process. We'll be back with more of our discussion on money and politics in just a moment. You're listening to the 1A podcast. To join future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to the conversation by adding one more voice. Connor Farrell is the head of Left Rising. That's a fundraising firm raising money for progressive Democrats. Connor, welcome. Thanks so much. Very happy to be here. And we should note we reached out to some of this campaign cycle's biggest spenders. The American Israel Public Affairs Committee declined to join the conversation, and we did not receive responses from the Club for Action Growth PAC, the House Majority PAC, or the Senate Majority PAC. Connor, you started Left Rising in 2018. Why? Yeah, great question. You know, my colleagues and I really saw uh, a deep need among progressive candidates and organizations for high quality fundraising. Um, you know, a lot of the people we work with, because they're they're progressive and the, the issues they run on and stand for, they tend not to take corporate PAC money, of which there is quite a lot out there. And so they tend to be at a fundraising disadvantage. And we did not want that to be the reason our candidates on our side of the party lose uh, elections. If we're going to lose, let's at least lose on the merits. And, um, you know, fortunately, we've been successful enough to win some of these races, but we absolutely wanted to bring quality fundraising to uh, a new new and growing part of the party, and that's the progressive wing. Now, you used to work for bigger PACs like Justice Democrats. How do you think your work in Left Rising is different, if at all? Yeah. Oh, that's a it's a great question. I mean, we still do work with Justice Democrats and we help them uh, with all aspects of their fundraising. Um, you know, I think I think the biggest difference right now is that in the progressive wing of the party, we are becoming better fundraisers overall and a little more sophisticated in the way we campaign. So there's a growing ecosystem of services, vendors, consultants, everything from, you know, polling and mail to um, super PACs that are dedicated just to helping progressives. So there's really a, just a growing infrastructure to help um, this side of the party. And I think that's the the biggest difference for us over the last few years. And it's really helping us compete with a lot of big spenders, like you mentioned, APAC, who's spent historic amounts in primaries this cycle to defeat progressives and elect right-wing Democrats. So we're trying to keep up. 
Where are you focusing your spending this election cycle? Uh, You know, most of our work this cycle has been to elect progressives in the House. So we've been fortunate to uh, help send Greg Kassar out of Texas, Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. um, And we've also done some some work up and down the ballot, like a Senate primary in Missouri. Um, And of course, we also want to help Democrats um, maintain control of the House. So we're we're working with Chris Deluzio in Pennsylvania 17. It's probably one of, if not the closest, um, House race this cycle and really critical for our ability to maintain control of the House. Your organization's website reads, quote, we won't let successful fundraising be exclusive to incumbents and established organizations, end quote. You know, as we've said, the most powerful super PACs have raised tens of millions of dollars this election cycle. Big picture, Connor, do you think this type of spending is is good for our democracy in the long term? (laughs) I certainly do not think it is good uh, for our democracy in the long term. Um, But, you know, until we achieve comprehensive campaign finance reform and, and, you know, certainly we're fighting for it. uh, I don't think we're going to see any change in the the trend of elections becoming more expensive and outside spenders just even dwarfing the spending of uh, candidate committees in in all these elections. Um, And not just that, but even self-funders are becoming more and more prevalent. I mean, millionaires and billionaires running for office and essentially being their own super PAC and spending unlimited amounts of money to get themselves elected. So, no, it's it's not a good trend, but um, we've got to get some more people in office who will fight for campaign finance reform. So what kind of campaign finance reform would you support? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, uh, a whole number of things. I mean, I'd love to see stronger rules against coordination between campaigns and super PACs. I'd love to see a, a limit on the amount a candidate can self-fund so that... Um, you know, millionaires and billionaires don't just have an immediate advantage when they run for office. And then I'd love to see a national, a really robust national federal public matching system, much like they have in in a lot of cities like New York, uh, where if you raise grassroots money from the people who live near you, the state or city, or in this case, maybe the federal government will match those contributions two to one, three to one, four to one, really giving a leg up to people who don't have uh, access to corporate PAC money and, and um, you know, are really more tend to be working class candidates. Now, I can hear people listening <laughs> saying, look, the horse is already out of the barn. And if everybody's spending this kind of money now, reining it in is going to be next to impossible. How do you ensure campaign finance reform actually happens if you get your people into office? Well, um, you know, all I can do is is use my talents to get those people in office and hope that once they're there, they'll have the answer to that question. Um, but I, I do think, you know, we we really as a as a party, as Democrats, need to take a hard look at at some of the PACs that are playing in our primaries, like APAC, which is funded by Republican billionaires and swearing off some of these players and, and trying to rein it in on our own and then pushing for actual legislation uh, to change our campaign finance system. That's Connor Farrell of Left Rising. That's a fundraising firm working to elect progressive Democrats. Connor, thanks for speaking with us. Absolutely. Thank you. I want to get back to the Supreme Court ruling on Citizens United. Aaron, when you look at the current landscape, how do you think the decision continues to shape elections today? Um, I mean, I think, you know, with each additional cycle, we just see how misguided the court's approach to the law was. And, you know, that was 
a different Supreme Court, this the part of the decision that said corporations can donate and can spend unlimited amounts um, on elections was a five to four decision. It would probably come out differently if the court were to look at it today. Um, but as I said earlier, the entire premise of that decision was on this notion that the money would be independent and that it would be transparent. I mean, and neither of those things are true. And we've talked a lot about the um, the lack of transparency. But on the coordination part, too, I mean, the the laws just have not kept up with these new types of um, entities that are spending money. And there are so many different ways in which outside groups um, are able to effectively coordinate with the campaigns that they're supporting and, and go without any sort of consequence. And whether it's having super PACs set up by a candidate's family members or former campaign officials that are intimately familiar with the campaign strategy and needs. Um, we're also seeing this new practice, or not, I guess not that new, but this uh, growing practice of something that's called red boxing, which I know the Times has reported on. This is where a campaign posts basically explicit guidance on their websites about the messages that they want communicated on their behalf and details down to how the message should be communicated, whether online or via radio or TV, um, and even specific demographics that they want to hear. I think there was an example reported on by the Times that had targeting guidance like liberals, voters under age 50, and women across specific counties. So, I mean, the things that we see these groups are able to get away with at this point are just completely um, the opposite of what the court said it was envisioning when it, you know, unleashed this unlimited spending on the people. Well, super PACs and other groups have dropped over $53 million in Democratic House primaries this year. In 2018 and 2020, that number was closer to $30 million. You know, Seth, as someone who's written about the modern Democratic Party, what do you make of that jump? Well, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing is just, uh, you know, an, an increasing belief that, uh, you know, this money works, basically. Um, we, you know, there were a lot of Democratic donors who got very involved in the, first of all, in 2018. Um, they were, you know, committed to pushing back against Donald Trump at the time and to trying to take back control of the House of Representatives that was seen as successful with all that money. Um, in 2020, uh, there was also a fair amount of success with spending. Um, you know, the Democrats, uh, as, as we've heard, were the more successful uh, side in, in fundraising in 2020. And that does seem to, there's some, uh, you know, some, some serious evidence that has suggested that um, that actually did help uh, Joe Biden, that, that um, in his presidential campaign, it, it enabled him to, uh, to turn out more, more voters uh, than the Trump side did, uh, in part because of that spending advantage. And, you know, there's, I think, just a, an increasing number of, uh, you know, Democratic activists and Democratic donors or potential donors out there who see this as increasingly, this is a way to get things done, to affect change. And, you know, in some ways, it's, uh, it, it, it can make people somewhat cynical uh, to see that, you know, how much of a role money plays. At the same time, um, we actually have seen power switch back and forth, uh, you know, based on who is the more organized side and uh, who is able to, you know, best secure some fundraising for their side. Well, we heard from Connor Farrell. Again, he's a CEO and founder of Left Rising. They're raising money to uh, get uh, progressive Democrats elected. And, and we heard Connor say, you know, I, that he supports campaign finance reform. But again, they're they're raising money right now and taking this approach because they want to get their people elected. I mean, how likely is it that we can backtrack on the spending we're seeing, Seth? Is that 
I mean, is, is it, as few people say, it is what it is, and this is where we are now, and there's no going back? Or do you think we could see some sort of reform? Well, we have seen some kind of reforms in the past. I think they haven't always gone in the right direction. Um, some of the reforms that we've had in the past are things like, you know, putting lower caps on how much people can donate. And what that does is that that really just encourages people to be more creative about how to get the money uh, from one candidate to another or from a donor to a candidate. Um, and that just makes it, it harder to track. Um, but uh, one sort of uh, reform that we've seen out there a little bit um, is actually just public funding. Um, there's a few state legislatures, including Arizona, that have attempted um, simple public financing of campaigns. Uh, political scientist Michael Miller has done some research on this, um, finding you know this, these are places where the state basically says, look, we will give you as a candidate a certain amount of money to run for office on the condition that you don't raise any money on your own. And a lot of candidates accept that. And it, uh, it actually seems to work pretty effectively. They still have pretty well-financed campaigns, except the candidates don't spend any of their time actually calling donors um, or holding fundraisers. And that actually seems to be good for, um, you know, not only making cam campaigns a little healthier, but uh, also reducing the cynicism somewhat about politics. Aaron, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think public funding um, is a is is great, and um, you know, we've we've seen it in states and a number of cities, um, and it does a lot of good things, including um, bringing a broader variety of people into the process, both as participants who make donations and get invested in elections, as well as like expanding opportunities for a broader range of people to run for office. But I think an even more fundamental, straightforward solution is to fix the laws so they reflect the landscape that the Supreme Court thought it was um, operating in when it issued the Citizens United decision. And that involves updating our coordination rules so they actually are meaningful, requiring transparency about the sources of election spending, including when, when those sources are C4s. Um, and, you know, perhaps most fundamentally, fixing the Federal Election Commission so that rather than gridlock, we actually see enforcement and application of the laws as Congress intended. And there, you know, the Freedom, the Freedom to Vote Act, which the House passed, um, included a lot of those reforms. Joining us today was Ken Vogel. He covers money and politics for The New York Times. Also with us, Seth Maskett, a political scientist at the University of Denver and the author of Learning from Loss, The Democrats from 2016 to 2020. And Aaron Klopak, the Senior Director of Campaign Finance at the Campaign Legal Center. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.